So this week's episode marks our last episode of the season, and it feels a little odd to describe what we do here as separated into seasons. I mean, we're not Stranger Things or anything, but um, I separate it this way because we'll be taking a couple weeks off towards the end of July and beginning of August, and then we'll be back around mid-August to bring you the same great interview content. But we're just going to be going down to every other week instead of every week. Now, I did something like this last year when I needed a break, and I've come to that point again. You know, a lot of life things have come up, some other commitments, the need to read for fun again, all of that. I'm still very committed to the show, and I absolutely love doing it. Just need a little bit more of a break right now, and I think that's something we can all relate to. So with that all said, let's enjoy our last episode of the season, my interview with Jean Thompson as we talk about A Death in the Family by James Agee. Welcome to your favorite book. Jean, welcome to the show. Um, To start you off, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about your work? Well, I've been writing fiction all my adult life, which is now pretty, you know, we're we're getting up there. I'll just say that. Um, (laughs) I have, let's see, 15 published books of fiction uh, who have been writing since my 20s, I think. And, uh, you know, you'd like to think you're getting better with time. Who knows? Uh, About half of those are collections of short fiction. Short fiction is pretty much how I began, and more and more I'm writing novels, it seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I, I think I had to find my feet, more or less, in that longer form. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and the book that, the, this latest book, The Poet's House, is a little bit different for me in that the subject is pretty much writers and writing. Mm-hmm. And um, finally, I think I reached the point where I had something to say about it, you know, that, that, mm-hmm. that somebody else might want to hear. Um, so that's a, a little bit that I can tell you by way of introduction. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to introduce it. And, you know, getting to this book immediately, so this latest book, The Poet's House, so I fell into the premise of this book immediately, so just that overall idea of this woman in her 20s, you know, trying to find her purpose in the world and then becoming enchanted not only by art itself, but the life of artists. Um, this is something I kind of felt deep in my soul. It's kind of the reason I started a podcast in the first place to talk to writers and, you know, sure. be immersed in that sense. And um, I'm really interested in the idea. So can you tell me about your approach to writing a character in this, you know, exploratory stage of life? Carla's only about 21 and then you yourself, you know, you have this more this wealth of experience that you're looking back on. Was it difficult to write a character at this stage? No, I can still sort of remember what it was like to be to be young. Um, and to, I had a, a I knew from the beginning that I wanted a younger, more naive character, someone who was an outsider to this world to uh to be the one to delineate it and to explore it that she uh is the stand-in for the reader the reader doesn't know who these people are or what to think about them although the reader might be less naive than than mm-hmm. Carla but i wanted someone to be like you know a visitor to this planet 
you know, planet poetry. Um, and of course she has her own insecurities and, and her own yearnings and, uh, trying to figure out, <clears throat> pardon me, who she is and where she stands in relation to this. So, uh, really, and because it's a first person narrator, uh, a lot of things just kind of fell into place. It was easy to have her tell her own story and she's a little bit of a smart ass mm-hmm. which you know which I am too uh, so you know she she has a an eye for sarcasm I think or an ear mm-hmm. for sarcasm and, and uh, when some of these characters come across her path uh, it's it's sort of like they're a different species or yeah. something and she's trying to to figure out who they are just as the reader might be trying to figure out you know who who are these people and and what do what do their lives consist of? So right. no, she was she was fun to write actually because because she's a smartass uh, because and and because she's you know unschooled in some yeah. ways. Yeah, I like how your comment you bring up that fact the fact that she's a smartass but she's also unschooled and that's one of. Carla's insecurities is, you know, she's someone who kind of struggled in school. She lacks a lot of that formal education. She has a learning disability, um, but she's here in this world of the literati, so to speak. It's all very um, highbrow and full of references she doesn't understand because it's an education that she hasn't had. And I think kind of hand in hand with that comes, you know, your commentary about writers and writing uh, and poetry especially, there's this idea that it's kind of outside the public at this point. It's something mm-hmm. unique and removed and therefore inaccessible. I'm thinking of this one conversation that Carla has with another young poet, and she brings up, you know, if Stevie Nicks a poet, essentially, and he just... Uh-huh. <laughs> and he's, he's very offended. <laughs> he's so offended, but I'm like, that's a really valid question, and it made me think about how we think about poetry. Do you... I feel like poetry is doing itself a disservice by removing itself from popular culture like this instead of recognizing, and I think people have gotten better about it as of late, but recognizing that poetry exists in so many elements of pop culture. It does, but, you know, there the, the poets I know uh, would rather slit their wrists than popularize themselves, uh, you know. <laughs> Uh, they, they have an aesthetic. I mean, I'll, I'll confess, there's times I've tried to write poetry. I actually tried to write some in the book. And I think I'm doing okay until I hear an actual poet, you know, talk about their process and mm. the things that they're trying to do. Uh, you know, it's, there's a sophistication to a lot of poetry that I don't think translates very well to the very accessible. Um, mm. it's a little bit like opera. You know, yeah. some parts of opera are very accessible, catchy and all that. But, you know, if, you, if you're if you a real aficionado, it's like, who brings what to this role? So, yeah. you know, I mean, there there's a, an elitism that, uh, I don't know, I'd love to hear what other actual poets think about it. And, and of course, as a fiction writer, I want, you know, to be accessible. Yeah. You know, I want people to, but but I don't want, to be simple-minded, uh, you right. know. Um, and in the book, poetry is kind of the stand-in for writing in general. Right. Um, because I don't write poetry, it was easier for me to kind of be objective about in, about poetry. And because poetry is 
pretty much art for art's sake, um, you know, whereas fiction is sometimes a, a diversion. You know. mm. um, and, of course, you know, there are poets and there are poets and there are those. I mean, I, I can never get rid of the narrative impulse when I try and put a poem together, uh, as I had to do. You know, I, I can't ever get rid of the... You know, let us go down to the sea again, the lonesome sea in the sky. You know, I, I always want, you know, a storyline in my poems, and that's not the way poetry really works for everybody. Right. Uh, so, you know, there, there, there is something still kind of exotic about most poems, mm-hmm. uh, most poets, perhaps. But it all that means is it takes a little bit of effort and a little bit of listening. Yeah. yeah. Uh in order to you know, to, to, to get into it. Uh and you know, I think the same applies to, to fiction, to well written fiction, that you know, you're gonna have to use a few brain cells yep. and give yourself over uh to to what is in front of you. Uh, so I'm not making an argument for elitism, but mm. I am making an, an argument for reader investment, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the way Carla comes to understand poetry, um, and I think this is important, is she does have a, a learning difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, reading is difficult for her, but she hears poetry spoken. Right. Her. She hears the words, and I think that can make all the difference. I really yeah. do. Uh, so... You know, I'm, I'm thinking, I guess, of uh, the Robin Williams, you know, movie, the the Dead Poetry, the Dead Poet Society, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where he goes into the classroom and tells them to tear out the introduction and and you know tear, you know, there's there's the idea of of uh, reading it in your book in your classroom where someone is standing over you with a ruler, and then jumping on the desk and declaiming it and mm-hmm. using it to Woo women, as Robin Williams' character says, you know, poet, the function of poetry is to woo women. Well, what, what an idea. Uh, so, yeah, there are ways, I think, to make it vital and accessible. Um, I think it gets a bad rap. Mm. You know, uh, I think poetry gets a bad rap. And, uh, you know, giving yourself over to it and, and giving it a chance is, Probably something we don't do enough these days. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I, I think poetry, I was going to, you led into the question I was going to ask, and that was your experience with poetry itself, because I also approach poetry with kind of this outside looking in perspective. I don't write poetry. I don't think I've written poetry since like, I don't know, school when we had to write yeah, since, and since we all did. <laughs> yeah. My art. Right. But I appreciate it quite a bit, and often I find that my way into it is, you know, giving myself permission to just feel what I feel and not over, like, try to find every hidden meaning that exists, but at the same time, you know, appreciating the intellectual effort that goes into poetry. So I think there is this balance to be struck between, you know, complete accessibility, not everything is meant to be consumed sort of popularly, but also, you know, being willing to expand into other ways of hearing and understanding poetry other than the conventional book learning sort of yeah. way. And that sort of yeah. made me think about your your characters where Carla is sort of on the outside looking in on their world, 
a lot of them just know nothing about what it's like to be someone like Carla, like living right. in the world and That's doing, right. you know, blue collar kind of work. And they're just as <laughs> into that as she is to her world. Yeah, they they think she's kind of exotic, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you know, uh, just for for a second more, uh, once in a fiction workshop, I took in the Sailing to Byzantium, the the Yeats poem, and I said, I'm just going to read this about four times. Don't mm -hmm. worry about what it means. Listen to the sound. Listen mm -hmm. to the sound. Listen to the sound. What what stays in your ear? What stays in your ear? And you know, just using that as an entry into mm -hmm. okay that's what okay here's this piece of language can you connect it with something else uh you know that that i i, I think we do poetry a disservice when we uh, turn it into something that has to be scanned and and uh, uh you know maximum erudition has to be applied to it mm -hmm. you know, yeah yeah uh, i totally you know. agree the other thing that struck me about your book, um, it's this idea of autonomy. So what it means to make your own decisions and figure out, you know, the right path in life for yourself. So we see Carla right. pulled in all these directions by Viridian, one of the poets, by her boyfriend, by her mom, all these different characters. Are, and ultimately, Carla is struggling to kind of make decisions in her world. And all these people are older than her, more experienced than her, and it made me think a lot about just the nature of something like mentorship. You know, yeah. how yeah. do we be a mentor and guide without completely stepping over someone's autonomy? And your book just made me think a lot about that concept. I don't really have a question at the end of it, but that just oh, made me think a lot about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, no, I, I don't know. There, there's not that many Yodas in the world, uh, you know, and and I don't know if we'd want to be uh, be mentored by Yoda, by an all-knowing being. And one of the things that's interesting in what you said to me is, about these people is they're all flawed. Mm -hmm. All the people that are telling her what to do or, or are expressing their disappointment or whatever are, you know, certainly have their own problems. Right. Uh, you know, uh, so. Which, which, uh, which I think we all feel when somebody tells us what to do. You know, who are you? Who are you to tell me? Uh, so, yeah, we get but, so much about their various flaws, their the errors they've made in life, how skewed the world is through their perspective, and sure. ultimately, you know, Carla makes mistakes and she has triumphs and she kind of has to find what feels comfortable to her. And I found her journey just to be a really interesting part of the book, and I just loved kind of. Entering the world of the poets, it's kind of vacuous in some ways, but also very insightful. It was it was just sort of a trip through the writing life, so to speak. Well, yeah, thank you. That's exactly what I was trying to do. And by the time, you know, they, they go to a writer's conference uh, mm -hmm. by the end of the book, and Carl was one of the people helping to run it. And I just had so much fun with that uh, because yeah. then that's writers in their natural habitat, uh, you know, as this – pressure cooker of everybody strutting around and showing off and uh, uh, <clears throat> making alliances and uh, falling in love and falling out of love and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, making enmities and, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating, uh, yeah. I, I think. And, and actually I was just thinking of this, uh, this morning, 
the picture I gave you of a writing conference is much tamer than any mm-hmm. conference I've ever been to. Really? Where, oh, yes. Oh, yeah. The, the misbehavior becomes glorious. Oh, you my know. Yeah, I mean, everyone should go to a writer's uh, conference at some point. Um, so, yeah. I mean, there – and, oh, and I will say this about both that section of the book and, and, and the book at large – None of those characters is based on anyone I know. It really is one of those, any resemblance to persons living or dead is purely coincidence. Um, There are traits, there are behaviors, there are quirks, there are personality, you know, tics and things that that might be recognizable, but I made everybody up. So so my, my friends and colleagues and acquaintances, don't have to worry, or they shouldn't. So, you know, you know I, I I was thinking like if this is a tamer a tamer version of a writing conference. I mean, I've been to some small writing seminars here and there, but um, in my professional life, as I've spoken about on the show, I'm a genetic counselor, and I'm trying to imagine the genetic counseling conference being full of debauchery. Well, like this. Still, we're there for our continuing ed. And on, like, <laughs> well, now I don't want to char every conference with the same brush or let people think that they're going to have uh, glorious sexual adventures if they just sign up. Uh, you know, but, but you know, people do let loose in interesting ways, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And, and I think, you know, maybe part of that is because we all walk around, we, you know, we, we go to the grocery, we return our library books, and, you know, it, it's not like paparazzi run up to you going, oh, are you a novelist? Are you, are you Jean? You know, it's like, but believe me, I am blessedly, you know, anonymous in my daily life, and and as most of us are. Um, and then you go to this place where you're finally you're allowed to inhabit that persona a little bit more freely. Uh, yes, damn it, I wrote this book, and you know, and and yeah, yeah, I'm I'm proud of it, and yeah, this is what I do. You yeah. know, um, we we don't live in a place where you know writers are visible particularly or or recognized or honored and and i think maybe that's part of the the letting off steam that happens at conferences and and of course the people that sign up to be students and who want or think they want that life and and want it very badly and are are tripping all over themselves trying to figure out how to do it right right this book really did feel like uh, just sort of a testament to that kind of life. You know, it's pros and it's cons, you know, told through that conduit of Carla. And it was a really entertaining story. I definitely enjoyed it. And Thank you. Yeah, I, I think, you know, first and foremost, when someone talks to you about your book, the first question is, did you like it? And it's like, yes. I, I oh, like good, good. You know, because because nobody's going to read past page three, you know, if they don't like it or Absolutely. find something to keep them reading. So, yeah. And so definitely everyone, you know, these are the kinds of themes that appeal to you. And honestly, if you listen to a podcast about books, you probably are going to be taken in somewhat by the lives of writers. I would definitely recommend The Poet's House here. Um, but before we move on any, uh, before we go on any further, I want to transition over to the book you chose for the episode, and that is uh, A Death in the Family by James Agee. And um, this is a book that had been on my radar for, for years. I think I bought a copy back in high school and just never mm-hmm. got around to reading it. 
Uh, so it was nice just being able to read it. It's this incredibly detailed, beautifully written book. And I'll never get over the fact that it was essentially unfinished when it was written. Right. It just drives right. me wild. Yeah. Well, uh, A Death in the Family is exactly what it says. Uh, it's a, an autobiographical novel by James A.G. Uh, at least the, the little, I mean, everyone pretty much agrees. This mm-hmm. is the story of his father who died when he was in an automobile accident, as this character does, when he was not quite six years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, the it's a universal sort of a, a, a an account because everyone has a family. Everyone yeah. experiences loss. And what is remarkable about the book is the 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 depth that goes into the patience of mm. of describing a particular scene or particular psychologies uh and especially writing from the point of view uh many chapters are from the point of view of the very young boy uh mm-hmm. Rufus uh so uh but but it also expands you get the mother's point of view you get some of the father's uh, so he's uh, you, you get different relatives. Uh, mm-hmm. you're, he's expanding what he knew at that time, yeah. uh, and and it's a very patient uh, kind of a, a, a narrative. That is, he spends a lot of time filling things in. Uh, the 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 book was unfinished when James A. G. died. At oh, I think he was only forty five. Mm-hmm. He had a massive heart attack and. Uh, People may not know, uh, he was also the, a screenwriter. Uh, he helped to write The African Queen and The mm. Quiet One and The Night of the Hunter and was a film critic. I mean, he was just a, 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 a great talent. Uh, also, they may know or have heard of his book with Walker Evans, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, uh, mm-hmm. which was a Depression-era era study of uh, impoverished cotton farmers, tenant farmers yeah. in the South, in the Deep South. And, uh, you know, the, the, the same kind of poetic writing, I would call it, is, you know, present in both of these books. And what I really started thinking about in trying to choose a book, I mean, everyone has about Usually about fifteen different favorite books. Don't of course, they? at at every at any at any given time. Maybe it's this one. Maybe it's that one. And I started thinking of a group of books, and I'll mention some of the others briefly when we close. But uh, that really did something that I'm not terribly good at, and that is a kind of a lyrical description, mm. a kind of uh, really. Uh, I don't want to say piling on of language, but you know, language that slows down and casts a spell and, you know, gets the most possible mileage out of something very simple and creates a mood and really draws you in because of that. Uh, As you mentioned, the book was unfinished when A.G. died and they had to uh, put it together, oh, in, in part because his family was impoverished and they wanted to do mm-hmm. something for him. And there has been controversy about the way it was put together. Different people saying, no, 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 he never would have wanted it this way. But, hey, the book went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. So, so yep. not, not too, not, those choices weren't bad. But <laughs> it, be, it begins, uh, you know, one, 
I, I think one measure of a book is how well it sticks with you over time. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I, I probably did read this in high school or early in college or something, at least. The, mm-hmm. the paperback I have is pretty shabby, you know, by now. When I went back to it just recently, I was struck by how much I remembered of not just the events, but individual phrasing and individual pieces of language, the, the language that can kind of imprint itself on you. Uh, the first section of the book is called Knoxville 1915, I think, and, mm-hmm. and it's just a, a scene of the street, the kind of street that he lived on, uh, evening, after supper, and the men come out and water their 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 lawns, you know, mm-hmm. with their hoses. And you know the care and attention that is spent on the sound of the hoses, yeah, and the way the hoses, uh, you know, chime together. And you know, I, I won't do it justice. Yeah, you should go read it. Uh, but it's it's just remarkable. Yeah. And a lot of times in writing fiction. What you're you're trying to strike a balance between, you know, prose itself and momentum of mm-hmm. plot, um, yeah. and you know, I, I'm 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 usually going, oh, you know, come on, we've got to get to the next thing. You know, somebody has to somebody has to answer this phone, so somebody else can show up at the door. You know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I I admire <clears throat> writers who can just say, hold on a minute. Trust me for a few pages while I, you know, uh, while, while I take my time yeah. you know, to, to set up a scene. And, and it's not just for the sake of the language or anything. I mean, it really does create a mood and even a spell, yeah. I think, that draws you in. Uh, so, and, and the events of the book are um, simple. Yeah. Uh, the father, I mean, there, there are some places that are, uh, some chapters that are outside of the, the main narrative, but the main narrative is the father leaves at night to drive to see his own father who is perhaps having a heart attack, uh, mm-hmm. and on the way back, uh, suffers a, a fatal auto accident. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, see what happens in the home. Um, you know, just the the mother having to tell two young children, mm-hmm. and the you know the confusion. I mean, the the way he inhabits the mind of this very young boy, because the mother is saying, "Well, God wanted him. Oh, well, that's mm-hmm. why he died." And Aunt yeah. Anna is saying, "No, you know, there was a the the steering wheel failed." You know. Yeah. And the confusion that a young child has trying to sort that out, um, yeah. and then you go through <clears throat> the the funeral, uh, which they don't attend, mm-hmm. but they witness portions of it. The the the, the two children. Um, so, uh, and that really is those are the events as such. Yeah. So, in order to you know come up with a solid book, I mean he really had to linger and you know explore places psychology mood uh yeah. you know relationships uh you know uh in in a way that I think is really compelling I think you covered almost 
everything I wanted to bring up about this. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, it, I should shut up once in a while. <laughs> no, no, it's all, all right turns uh, uh, on. This book was just such a marvelous reading experience. And so I want to just, you know, build upon a couple of the things you brought up. So I think the two words I would use to describe this, and these are words you use, um, both poetic and very patient. Um, this yeah. is a book that really takes its time in all of these scenes. It gets to the point where there, there are these certain scenes in the book where, um, so for instance, when Jay, the dad, is leaving home and he sits down to a really early breakfast with his wife, Mary, that scene uh-huh. goes on and on and on. Or when Mary finds out that Jay has died and they're waiting for news, that scene goes on. And these yeah. scenes, you know, you would think that they get dull or everyone's talking in circles, but essentially that's kind of the point here. We're getting into so much detail because to me what this book ultimately amounted to was kind of the the darker ends of sort of that suburban ideal. That's kind of what this book is doing for me because you, you start, you know, with those lawn sprinklers going off and that beautifully poetic, you know, sounds of the lawn sprinklers. And then there's a scene that Rufus is sort of recounting about, you know, summer days with his family and um, what it was like. And they'd go to movies and they do this kind of thing before everything starts. And you get these sort of idyllic scenes because you know later they're all going to come crashing down. Right. And the thing that kind of moves this book along is just the constant miscommunication between everyone. Everyone is trying to save everyone else's feelings. Everyone's trying to talk around what's going on. Uh, you see different adherences to things like religion, and nobody wants to contradict everyone else. But at the same time, what you're left with, especially in the characters, that the child characters were so well rendered is you get just this massive amount of confusion. It's these children right. unwilling to separate the literal from the figurative because they're young, you know, they're, they're six and I think Catherine might be less than four. They're yeah. young children and they're just yeah. trying to find out what's going on. They barely understand death and they're given these sort of mixed messages. You see Mary herself, who was just sort of a heartbreaking character on her own, you know, who seems very childlike in so many ways and her ability to cope and understand and still having to guide these young children and having the influence of her family around her. It's this very dense, oppressive idea of, you know, someone has died and things are falling apart and no one knows what to do about it. And it's so beautifully written. I I feel like if you didn't linger in those important scenes, if you did just try to cut to the next part, you wouldn't have the feeling that this book evokes. And that's the main yeah. thing. If you had Raymond Carver rewriting this book, it would, you know, be about 10 pages long, <laughs> uh, you know. But, you know, talk about miscommunication. There's the grandmother who's actually deaf, mm-hmm. you know, and she uses an ear trumpet. You know, we're back in the days of the ear trumpet. You know, mm-hmm. part of the book's charm, I think, is also going back 100 years or more, yeah. you know, to where there's still horse-drawn carts and uh people with mules and and mm-hmm. uh you know there there's also a, a kind of a wincing passage about uh the young boy who meets up with the the black nurse that he had when he was very young and, and yeah. asks her why is her skin colored and yeah. you know the and and the woman has to explain as best she can mm-hmm. please don't say 
things, you know, like yeah. this. But you know, Victoria knows she you you love her and she loves you, and mm-hmm. you don't mean no harm, but you have to be careful. So there's an initiation into all sorts of things, and uh, certainly religion. Going back to Mary for a minute is, I mean, that's her main prop uh, is you know, praying to God, and there's even a point where what she really berates herself for is trying, uh, is almost losing her faith. <laughs> you yeah. know, why is God doing this to me? And it's like, you know, lady, as far as I'm concerned, you've got a lot more problems than that. Yeah. But that is, that's true to character, that that she yeah. should feel this so deeply. There's also a wonderful scene <clears throat> where a priest comes to the house Mm-hmm. to console or to talk about the funeral. And the priest is meant to be very unpleasant in the years. Yeah. And he's left downstairs with the two very young children, and they're just staring at him because they have no idea who he is. And he's saying, it's rude to stare at people. And they and they just goggle at him. And he says, so, your behavior is deliberate and uncivil. What? Yeah. What? What you know? Uh, they he misses them by a mile, and and he's similarly unpleasant, I think, in in his official capacity. So, and this is interesting because I think A. G. was uh, quite religious, you know, in in his in his kind of shambling or undisciplined way. Uh, but but religion uh, comes off uh, kind of badly here. Um, there's a there's one character, it's it's the mother's brother, Andrew, I think, who is a, a non-believer. And yeah. uh, uh, he talks later about how the priest wouldn't give the full burial service because the father wasn't baptized or confirmed or something. Mm-hmm. And yet he says, he, he tells, I think it's just Rufus, you know, that as the coffin was being lowered, a magnificent butterfly went down into the grave with it. And then flew up all of a sudden. Mm. And he's going, you know, now that's what I mean by, you know, by, by salvation, damn it. You know, not, not what the priest was saying. So right. there is a lot of wrestling with religion and a lot of confusion about religion. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. And it, it, you get this, the, the sort of warring elements of, of religion here, you get this warring gender dynamic of men versus women oh, where it's yes. like Mary gets the phone call and they're like, is there a man who can come here? Right. And immediately you know you're 100 years in the past, obviously, but you... Well, you yes and no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no one's communicating with her. And no. even though she's a grown woman with two children, everyone kind of treats her as younger than she is. There's yep. this... this element where she and then there's the financial element there's no way she's going to be able to support the family now and it's just a tremendous amount of despair and you're right that the idea that she's you know beating herself up for losing faith momentarily when grieving her her dead husband you're thinking like there's so much more you need to be thinking about than this and well, yeah. The, although her father, I think it is, says, Mary, there will be some financial difficulties, but don't worry, we'll take care of it. Right, you know. right. Uh, there's also a, a class uh, comes into it because the the father, the father who has died, came mm-hmm. from this extremely poor rural family. Yeah. Um, and there was even opposition to the marriage uh, mm-hmm. because of these things. So the the mother's family is a town family and they're much yeah. better off 
Um, it's interesting if you go on and think about AG writing uh, or doing the, the field work. I mean, they, they went down south and saw the cotton farmers and lived with them for a month, uh, you know, talking about the rural poor, because he was not very far removed from that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, through through his father's family. So so yeah, it's a it's a wonderful microcosm of the whole world, really. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and the way in which it operated. Uh, and and I think that's part of its charm, uh, at least for us now. I I don't know if somebody. I think I think the book was written about, or he started writing it in the late thirties. Yeah, or wrote portions of it. Yeah, and then he died yeah. in the fifties or so. He worked right. on it for a while. Something. Yeah, happened. yeah, and he despaired about it, and he beat his head against the wall. He he was he was wildly talented and wildly unhappy and unstable yeah. and alcoholic and and you know, oh boy, if if I'd put him into my book at the writers conference. <laughs> You know, it would have been pure chaos. You know, he he would have been one of the ones who was drinking all night, and you know, mm-hmm. making making everybody else drink along with him, and you know, they'd all get lost in the woods and eaten by a bear or something. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, the the more I I started thinking about him and reading about him, I mean, he's he's a compelling figure. I mean, he was yeah. one always berating himself for his lack of you know, accomplishment. Yeah. Even though yeah. we would look at what he left behind and say, not damn bad. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, if I wrote a death in the family, I, yeah, I think I could, I could go to my reward, you know, with a clear conscience. Right. You know, I'd, right. I'd, I'd feel okay that. about that. the kind of acclaim he would receive. And oh, it's, yeah. It's really absolutely. this idea of being a tortured genius, so to speak. Oh. And I'm, this book is a stroke of genius, I honestly think. And honestly, for everyone who, um, for, for my listeners, I, I can't recommend this book enough as an audio book. So I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm someone who, when it comes to dense prose these days, you know, in my adult life, I tend to just absorb it a lot better listening to it, almost similar to Carla listening to poetry. And the audio book for this book is actually really well done. And it really oh, captures okay. just the length of these scenes and just the, the circular nature, a lot of the dialogue, it's very immersive, and I don't know, it, it's just a really well done audio book. And so, if, if someone's looking for a way into a text that might feel a little dense, that's certainly a great way to do so. Well, you know, he he was a, <clears throat> a scriptwriter for the movies, so he mm-hmm. knew a thing or two about keeping dialogue going, uh, yeah. you know, and 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 the strength of that. So, uh, you know, it's yeah, it's a book that we're 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 both very pleased with and we want Absolutely. to recommend it. Yeah. I was so glad that I finally got around to reading this and I'm glad you chose it and sort of thinking about the book in general and you mentioned there were some other books that you'd sort of draw into along with this one in conversation. So what are those? Yeah. Let, let me mention those just briefly. Uh because I I started thinking in terms of books that books whose prose had that same kind of patience and that same kind of you know, not not decorative quality, but mm-hmm. made the most. But <coughs> pardon me of of description to as an element, mm-hmm. and 
that's something that uh, I've, I've heard discussed lately uh, by writers I respect. Um, so one of these books is, um, again, an older book, uh, Dancer from the Dance by Andrew Holleran, which is that. a book about gay life um, in New York City in between uh, or before AIDS but after Stonewall. So here are all these young men turned loose to find themselves to experiment sexually, which they do with great abandon. And mm-hmm. it's a book about going to the clubs and going to the bathhouses. Uh, and it's, you know, it certainly makes reference to a lot of sexual behavior uh, in ways that might startle you if you're not, you know, accustomed to it. But it's also an exploration of what it was like to live for pleasure and for beauty and for glamour, um, all the while saying these are insubstantial things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, it's another book that I started, you know, that I began reading again just to familiarize myself with it and Right away, it's like, yes, I remember that and that and that. Mm -hmm. This must be what it was like to dance in those clubs and to come out when the sun was rising, you know, and you're exhausted and you've had just as much fun as you possibly can in one night. Uh, And it's also um, the the idea of living for pleasure and beauty and glamour is, is also treated as, you know, kind of a... Uh, a false light. Yeah. Uh, at one point, they're driving. They're 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 on their way to Fire Island, and they're going through mm-hmm. the village. And the line I remember is, "They were so intent on pleasure, they drove right through happiness." Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also a religious aspect. I mean, from page one. Yeah. yeah. And Andrew Holleran, who is uh, that's actually a pen name. Uh, I forget his real name, but Eric something. But he has a new book out uh, called The Kingdom of Sand, I believe. Uh, you know, uh, so uh, he's he's still out there. He's still writing, and this is uh, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful book in in terms of its language and in terms of its sadness, uh, because of course we know what is going to happen to this world. You know, AIDS mm-hmm. is going to happen. Yeah, uh, yeah. there is, there is, this is, this is finite. Um, let me mention just a couple more books. Well, actually one is mentioning four books and that is, uh, Lawrence Durrell's Alexandria Quartet, mm. which is the four books set in Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, they were published between, I want to say, 1958 and 1960. Mm-hmm. And he's up to very complicated Things in it's like a four-layer novel, and one in one a character is the narrator. In the second book, that book is gone over by another character saying, "Let me tell you what really happened." <laughs> in the third book, that first-person narrator becomes a character, and in the fourth book, there's kind of a synthesis. So the and and. And and it gets deep, let me just say that. But mm-hmm. the language is, again, kind of unforgettable. You're in this exotic location of Alexandria, Egypt, and the, the you know, just the, the, the types of wind, the types of seas, uh, the air, the atmosphere, the, the kind of 
I guess we would call it decadence, uh, you know, mm. uh, you know, is, you know, it, it's really enchanting, uh, you know. So that may or may not be the book for you. You may not have the patience for all four <laughs> volumes, but, uh, it's, it's worth calling attention to. Let me mention also, <clears throat> and this is kind of a, an outlier in, in our group, but it's a classic, by now a classic horror novel, mm. uh, Tom, Thomas Tryon's The Other. Hmm. Uh, and and again, I'm, I'm thinking of it in terms of its language. Uh, there's a scene I was just rereading where uh, a young boy is striking a match in a dark barn, and just hmm. the mechanics of how that light comes to be and how your hand looks in the dark in front of a flame and the shadows it casts and uh, and here, of course, the description is meant as just a, uh, a atmospherics, you know, building this sense of menace and horror. And uh, if you don't know that book by the title, I bet you'd recognize the premise. There's two 13-year-old identical twin boys. Mm. One of them, one of them is very nice and polite. The other seems very bad mm. <laughs> and some very bad things start happening to people but all of it written in just the most beautiful attractive prose that you want to be out in that grape arbor and you you want that picture of lemonade and you know you want to be out in the fields of, of this little town in Connecticut uh, it's all very attractive Except for the people who keep dying, <laughs> you know. So, so, and it's been uh, it's been a movie at least at least once. Uh, but you know, the the skill he has with language is one of of the real strengths. And and there, the idea is to build this sense of gloom and doom and and mm-hmm. this, and, and absolute absolute creepiness. <laughs> Absolute creepiness. Uh, although you're taking something that's that's you know here's a beautiful landscape, you know, or uh, uh, you know you could you could write the same thing and make it happy and uplifting and oh oh listen aren't we having a nice summer day here except for the evil twin <laughs> you know so, so <laughs> I love how diverse all these recommendations are with this sort of shared idea of just you know maximalist immersive language but all these totally different plots and I, i'm here for it this is I oh well well that, that that kind of immersive language you know we we always admire that which we can't really do ourselves and and mm. you know i mean if you if you put a gun to my head and said here write five pages of really good description i guess i could do it you know but <laughs> it's not something that comes naturally to me and right. it's not something i find myself doing Mm-hmm. You know, just for fear for fear of putting people to sleep, honestly. Right. Um, and so when a writer has, you know, the confidence uh to pull that off mm-hmm. and you know, damn it, you know, I don't I don't care if you want to turn that page. You know, you're gonna you're gonna sit here and, and listen to me talk about that quality of light or the sound mm-hmm. the water makes or or something. Uh yeah. so I admire people who can pull that off. Absolutely. And I, I share your sort of envy as well. I tend to write, you know, very short. My my just writing runs short. And I but I love to throw myself into beautifully written description. I'm just like, you know, I feel like if I do that, I'm going to bore everybody. But I admire it when other people do it. 
And this book was definitely an exercise in that. And yeah. Jean, I, I have to thank you for, you know, getting me to read this book and also, oh, you know, introducing, me, so introducing me to your book as well. Both of them were great reads. And I urge everyone listening to check these books out. They're just, they're great. Well, and I thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to bend your ear for all this while and and to talk about things that I love. So that I appreciate that chance. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Like I mentioned at the beginning, this is our season finale. So a couple weeks off, just ending out July and some of August. And then mid-August, we'll be back to our regular interview episodes just every other week this time. In the meantime, feel free to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. I'll still be very active there at YFB Podcast. And of course, reviews and rating on all your favorite podcast platforms, very much appreciated. So with that, thank you all for joining me for yet another season. It's been a privilege, and I wish you some fun summer reading and some much-needed rest. Take care. Mm-hmm.